Here we are, Exodus chapter 26. We're continuing on with Moses up on Mount Sinai and the Lord God giving him instruction concerning the tabernacle, concerning the construction of it, concerning, um, you know, at the Ark of the Covenant we looked at last week and the, the table for the showbread and so forth. And so tonight we really get into great detail of the tabernacle. And these next few chapters, these are chapters that, you know, if you're doing devotions and you read through the Bible, I'm always trying to be reading through the Bible. I read through it, I start over, I read through it, start over, and so forth. Look at it in all honesty, when you come to chapters like this, it's really hard at times to go through and read through every single detail. And, uh, you know, start talking about the 50 loops and the cubits and the, you know, at the, the different layers and so forth. And in a way, you know what, there's a lot of instruction that was given to give them the details of how to build the tabernacle. And I think, I think we need to be careful with this because some people, they, they try to dissect all of it. And you know what, you know what, what's the meaning of the 50 loops? And I'm, I'm sure there's some meaning there, but you know what, it's easy to get into a place where maybe we're reading too deep into the text, trying to find something there. And we want to be careful in doing that. And we also want to be careful in not just you know, glossing over this and saying, well, you know what, okay, yeah, that's about the tabernacle, that's about the stuff in it, let's just skip ahead to chapter 28. We don't want to do that either. And so I think the healthy balance is to look at this in light of what the scripture says about it. And in Hebrews chapter 8, it talks about this tabernacle, and we talk about this oftentimes, but we, it talks about how this was the copy or the shadow of heavenly things. Because there is a ha- heavenly tabernacle, there is a heavenly temple, so to speak. One day that, that tabernacle in the new Jerusalem is going to come down here upon earth. And uh, so this was a shadow of those things. And when we look at the law, we know those things are shadows of the substance that would come. And those things are the shadow, but listen, the substance every time is the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you look at that, and you look at this chapter knowing that, and we'll read Hebrews 8, 1 through uh, 6 in a second here that talks about this, then we know we can look at this and we can see that it's a shadow or it's a copy of heavenly things and we can see Jesus in the tabernacle. And there's all sorts of things in this tabernacle that point to the Lord Jesus Christ, that point to the cross of Calvary where the Lord would ultimately atone for our sins that this tabernacle and these altars and the holy place there on earth where the priests went in once a year, the high priest, would be done away with and it would all be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, listen, practically, again, you know what, I'm in the new covenant, but not having to do all that stuff makes ministry a whole lot easier as well. Because man, a lot of rigmarole went into all of this, all these details, all this effort, and yet Jesus did it all. And we can rest in what Jesus has done for us. So Hebrews 8, 1 through 6, to set this up, it says, now this is the main point of the things we are seeing. We have such a high priest, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, not man. So this is a tabernacle we're reading about tonight that men erected. Jesus, though, has erected the true tabernacle. Verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also having something to offer For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. 
as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, see that you make all the things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. This speaks of Jesus. And as much as he is also a mediator of a better covenant, which was established on a better promise or on better promises. And so again, this has to do with the covenant that they entered into, but it was just a shadow of the new covenant that would come, the Lord Jesus Christ, the substance who would be the fulfillment of the old. So again, as we look at this, we look at these patterns, we look at this instruction throughout it, we'll see the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll see heavenly things, again, as heavenly things were copied to be put forth upon earth. So notice verse 1 down through 6. Let's read it together in Exodus 26 here. The Lord speaking to Moses there on Mount Sinai. He says, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven linen and blue and purple and scarlet thread. With artistic designs of cherubim, you shall weave them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits. The width of each curtain shall be four cubits. And if you want to do math, a cubit... It's supposed to be, most people think it's about 18 inches, it's about a foot and a half. And every one of the curtains shall have the same measurements. Five curtains shall uh, be coupled together, coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and you shall make loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain, on the, on the, sel- on the selvedge of one set, and likewise you should do on the outer edge of the other curtain of the second set. Verse 5, 50 loops shall make in the one curtain and 50 loops you shall make in the edge of the curtain that is at the end of the second set, and the loops may be clasped to one another, and you shall make 50 claps of gold, a couple of the curtains together with the claps, uh, and couple of the curtains together with the claps, so that it may be one tabernacle. So a couple things here. First of all, notice, and we'll see that there are four layers of the tabernacle. The first one is fine woven linen. It's 28 cubits by 4 cubits, and you're going to see that this went on the inside, and it didn't actually touch the ground. So when you're inside the tabernacle, this would be what you would see. So this was done with, again, great artistic design. Cherubim were woven in to this linen. And since Moses was up there on Mount Sinai, no doubt, as God was showing him heavenly things, Moses had to have gotten a glimpse of a cherubim. And listen, make no mistake, a cherubim is not a chubby little angel with wings that looks like a little boy in a diaper. (laughs) Listen, when man sinned in the garden and he was given the boot, it says a cherubim with a flaming sword was put in front of it to keep man from coming back in. So no doubt this cherubim uh, and these cherubim, listen, they're mighty warriors. They're, uh, again, incredible uh, in stature and so forth. And so this would be woven in on the inside there of the linen, on the inside of the tabernacle. And this would be there for a few things. First of all, so that they would see the beauty, again, of worshiping the Lord. They would see the beauty of the Lord, so to speak. They would see the beauty of heaven, so to speak, here on earth. And absolutely, listen, when we worship the Lord, it is a Beautiful thing. They were in there worshiping the Lord. I love Psalm 147, 1. It says, praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and praise is 
beautiful. And it is a beautiful thing when believers genuinely get together and genuinely worship the Lord with their heart and with their voices. Again, the cherubim as well, woven in there, would be a reminder to them that they were in the Lord's hands, that God's angels were encamped around them. Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around all those who fear him and delivers them. And we know that angels are ministering spirits sent to minister to the saints. We don't worship them. We don't pray to them. We don't pay them reverence. We give worship to God, but they absolutely are ministering spirits that God puts a hedge around us with to minister to us and go before us. And no doubt when we go to glory one day, um, I'd have to think that we are going to get, you know, at the the hidden camera uh, version of our life and see all the times that the Lord's angels encamped around us, spared us from this, that, or the other. It will be uh, pretty marvelous. Notice as well, and these colors come up throughout the tabernacle, blue, purple, and scarlet. Uh, these were costly materials. It wasn't like they just ran down to, you know, at the yarn shop and got these colors. These things were uh, dyed with uh, incredibly uh, uh, valuable uh, resources and so forth. Blue would be a reminder of a heavenly color, most people think. And so, again, it was a reminder. It's a pattern here on earth of heavenly things. Purple was the color of royalty. And in that, we know that Jesus Christ, royalty, the King of Kings, came here on earth. And scarlet or red would be a reminder of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. One other note here, and you're going to see this throughout the tabernacle, uh, you know what, in the curtains, uh, as they were making the fine woven linen and these different pieces, he says to make them all of the same measurements. And this was an orderly tabernacle. They weren't building a cattywampus mess here. This thing wasn't, a, you know, wasn't going to lean over. It was to be done with precision. It was to be done with order. And absolutely, as they would go and worship the Lord, they would do it in an orderly manner. And listen, today we've been called to worship the Lord in an orderly manner because He's a God of order. 1 Corinthians 14.40, let all things be done decently and in order. And so we want to be in the Word of God and get that instruction from Him to worship Him in an orderly manner, yet in a manner that is not rigid or a manner that's legalistic, but in a manner where the Spirit of God moves in accordance to the Word of the living God. Now, notice 7 through 14. Let's read it together. And we're going to read now about the next three layers of the tabernacle. Uh, I'll I'll, I'll spill the beans. The next layer would be goats here, and then uh, ram skins, and then it would have a, uh, an outcover of badger skins. So let's just read it here together. Verse 7, you shall make curtains of goats here to be a tent over the tabernacle. You shall make 11 curtains. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits, and the width of each uh, curtain, 4 cubits. So again, these are longer. The other ones were 28. Now these are 30. So these touch the ground the woven linen didn't touch the ground. And we'll come back to that here in a second. And the 11 curtains shall all have the same measurements. Again, we see the order. And you, shall, uh, and you shall couple five curtains by themselves, six curtains by themselves. You shall double over the sixth curtain at the forefront of the tent. And you shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is the outermost in one set and 50 loops on the edge of a curtain of the second set. And you shall make 50 bronze clasps Put the claps in the loops and couple the tent together. 
that it may be one. The remnant that remains of the curtain of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle and a cubit on one side and a cubit on the other side of what remains of the link of the curtains of, curtains of the tent shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle that is on, on this side and on that side to cover it. And you shall also make a covering of ram skins dyed red for the tent and a covering of badger skins above that. So again, we got the fine linen, the woven uh, linen with the cherubim on the inside that they would see. And now they have the goats here over it that's 30 cubits in length, and it would no doubt go down and it would touch the ground. And again, listen, a lot of historians, a lot of commentators, they've gone through this. I read through quite a few of them. There's some things that are quite obvious. There are other things that are suggestions. It's been suggested, though, as the goats here cut, touch the ground, it's symbolic of the fact that Jesus Christ came and he walked here upon the earth, that he came here, that, again, God Almighty became flesh and dwelt among us. There, 1 John 14. And listen, as Jesus walked here on earth, we've been called to follow him. 1 John 2, 6, it says, He who abides in him ought himself also walk just as he walked. Notice next, it says that there was ram skins over the goat's hair, and they were dyed red. And again, throughout the tabernacle, when we see things dyed red, we think of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because they're in the tabernacle again. It's where sacrifice were offered up. It was where the shedding of blood was offered up. But it was just, again, men doing these things in an earthly manner with faith. But the fulfillment is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrated his own love towards us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. And they would offer up these sacrifices in the tabernacle. A lot of blood was shed, but that never satisfied the wrath or the, the justice of God. It never saved men from the wrath of God. They were saved by grace through faith, but their faith wasn't fulfilled until Jesus, the substance, came and fulfilled all that they had faith in when they were practicing in the shadow. And then on the outside of the ram skin would be the badger skins, the exterior. And listen, make no mistake, after 40 years in the wilderness, this thing looked rough. You think of the tabernacle and you think of something glorious. And again, the inside was glorious with the cherubim woven in and the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies and the showbread and the lamps and so forth. But the outside... 40 years of badger skins in the wilderness being moved from place to place to place. After a while, this place looked rough. And the outside of it, no doubt, was not attractive. The inside, though, again, was beautiful. And many have suggested that this speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ here on earth. There's many paintings that have been made of Jesus. There's been many movies made you know what about Jesus? And if you notice, he always looks like a GQ model. Serious. I mean, they get these guys and they got the flowing hair and the blue eyes and so forth. And, you know, Brad Pitt is, and you know what, as I've been told, the ladies think he's an attractive man or so forth. Uh, as a guy, every guy looks the same to me. But, you know, uh, and, and they'll put Jesus like that. But that's not what the scriptures say. Isaiah 53 2, it says, He shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And he root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and we see him. And, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. 
And I don't know what exactly the Lord looked like, but again, on the outside, the scripture says he wasn't an attractive man. It wasn't a sense that he would come in and the whole room was soft. He wasn't a Saul in appearance or a David in appearance. But inwardly, again, he was without sin. He died for the sins of the world. And there's something here because how oftentimes are men caught up with the exterior and the outside of things? And think about Jesus. He even said to the Pharisees, you make the outside of the cup clean, but the inward of the cup or the inside of your heart, it's like dead men's bones, but not the case with our Lord. Jesus came and he died for our sins. And again, when we come into relationship with him through his shed blood and through a sinless life that he lived, it indeed is a beautiful, beautiful thing, and it saves us from the ugliness of this world. One other note here again, these four layers all together, they would protect the interior from the elements. It would be a refuge, again, of those things on the outside. And as we consider that, we just think of Jesus. He is our refuge. I love Psalm 61, 1 through 4. It says, hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And notice verse 3 and 4. For you are my shelter. For you, you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in your tabernacle forever, and I will trust in the shelter of your wings. But listen, if you trust in an earthly tabernacle, you try to abide in an earthly tabernacle forever, it isn't going to work. This speaks of abiding in the heavenly tabernacle forever, and we have access through that. Again, not through the blood of bulls and goats, but through the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, the substance. Now notice here verse 15, down through verse 30. We read now about the boards and the sockets and the bars and the things that help hold up the structure of the tabernacle. It says, verse 15, and for the tabernacle you shall make the boards of acacia wood, standing upright. Ten cubits shall be the length of a board, and a cubit and a half shall be the width of each board. Two tenons shall be in each board for binding one to another. Thus you shall make for all the boards of the tabernacle. And you shall make the boards for the tabernacle, 20 boards for the south side. You shall make 40 sockets of silver under the 20 boards, two sockets under each of the boards for which it's two tenons. Verse 20. And for the second side of the tabernacle, the north side, there shall be 20 boards, and there shall be 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. And they say those sockets on the ground, one commentator read, said they weighed like 150 pounds each. So that's a lot of silver there. Verse 22, and for the far side of the tabernacle westward, you shall make six boards, and you shall make two boards for the back, two back corners of the tabernacle. These shall be coupled together at the bottom, and they shall be coupled together at the top by one ring. And it shall be for the both of them, they shall be for the two corners. And so there shall be eight boards with their sockets of silver, 16 sockets, two sockets under each of the boards. Verse 26, and you shall make bars of acacia wood, five, bar, five for the boards on one side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle, five bars of boards for the other side of the tabernacle, and for the, for, for, for the far side westward. And the middle bar shall pass through the midst of the boards from end to end, and you shall overlay the boards with gold, make their rings for gold as holders for the bars, and overlay the bars with gold, and they shall rise up the tabernacle according to the pattern which you were shown on the mountain. That's a lot of gold, a lot of silver. And it really speaks to when, again, these were slaves not long before this. But remember when they left Egypt, 
they asked the Egyptians for gold and silver and badger skins and ram skins and dye and all these various things. And the Egyptians gave that to them willingly. And it wasn't that they were looting them. It wasn't that they were taking that which was an owed to them. Listen, 400 years of slavery, not getting paid for that. There's a big payoff. And so the Lord, again, had blessed them as they left. And now, remember, beginning, the Lord asked for any who would give willfully. Let them come and give willfully so that the tabernacle can be built. And the people absolutely willfully, they gave. Now, just one note here from what we just read. And we've read it in the other two passages as well. We read of boards, we read of bars, tenons, loops, and clasps. And it was so all this could be bound together. So it all could become one. And remember, they would have to break this down. The Lord would lead them through the wilderness. And there's many times, you know, where they'd go to another place. And we just read that, oh, they're going to another place. But could you imagine having to break all of this down and pack it all up? A whole tribe was set aside just to do this. And so not only would it have to be broken down, but put back together and made one again. And all of these things, again, the boards and the tendons and the bars, the loops and the clasps and so forth, it bound it all together and it made it all one. That's what we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that binds us all together. Jesus said in John 10, 20, For I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one as you, uh, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And so absolutely Binding all this together and making it one, it's a picture of us when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ. We become one with the Father, one with the Son, and the Lord's desire is that we would walk in fellowship with one another. And we need to endeavor to do that in truth. Ephesians 4.1 says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with longsuffering, bearing with one another in love. Notice here, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And notice here again, he says to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. And right before that, this is a real insight of how to keep the unity of the bond of peace, walking with lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, and bearing with one another. So to keep that unity, we need to be humble, we need to be gentle, we need to be long-suffering, we need to bear with one another. Now again, the oneness though is in truth, the oneness is in the Lord, and so that's part of it as well, walking in the truth of the Lord, but in walking in the truth of the Lord and striving in that, it's with humility, it's with gentleness, it absolutely is bearing with one another. If we don't want to bear with one another, again, and we're not talking about enabling gross sin and heresy and that kind of stuff, but listen, we're just people here tonight trying to walk with the Lord, right? And there's ups and there's downs and there's pitfalls and setbacks at times and wildernesses and so forth, and at times we may offend one another. Hopefully we're not doing that deliberately. I know there's times in my preaching where sometimes people are offended from the word and so be it, and sometimes they're just offended by me. You know, and then we have a choice to make. Do I want to just forgive or do I want to say you offended me to give someone an opportunity to ask for forgiveness? But that's what bearing one another is, walking with humility, not being so sensitive that at any point I'm going to be offended and just turn and walk away and take my ball and go home and go in the corner. Then you're not endeavoring to keep 
the bond of peace in the Lord who binds us all together. Again, imagine if they got out there in the tabernacle and some of the clasps were missing and the loops were missing and so forth. It'd be hard to bind it all together. And God's given us all gifts to come together to walk in unity in the Lord Jesus Christ, again, in the truth of his word and worship of him and so forth. Now we come to 31 through 37, and we read about the veil that would go into the Holy of Holies. So the whole tabernacle is being built, and then within it, about a third of it was the Holy of Holies. And we'll read here, this is where the Ark of Covenant would be. This is where the high priest would enter in once a year to make sacrifice again for the sins of the nation. So verse 31, he says, you shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread. We see those colors again. And fine woven linen, it shall be woven with artistic design of cherubim. So again, we see the design aspect of this and the beauty of it. Verse 32, you shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasp. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider between the holy place and the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand across from the table on the side of the tabernacle towards the south. And you shall put the table on the north side. And you shall make a screen for the door of the tabernacle woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen made by a weaver. And you shall, be, and you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia wood, overlay them with gold, their hooks shall be gold, and you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. So this was quite a front door into the tabernacle. And again, once you went in, this veil that we just read about would separate the holy place from the most holy or the holy of holies. Now, there's a lot to talk about here, um, but I want to read to you because this speaks for itself, Hebrews 9, 1 through 15, because it compares, again, this earthly tabernacle, which eventually would be replaced by the temple and the holy of holies that was in the tabernacle as well, which, it, which was in the temple. And then it speaks about Jesus, our high priest, once and for all, fulfilling all the effort that these guys made year in and year out because the blood of bulls and goats never took away the sins of mankind. And if Jesus had never come, man would be in big trouble. All of this pomp and so forth, all of this activity, it would be for naught if the substance had never come. If they were just looking at the shadow, but the one casting the shadow, the Lord never actually came, but he came and he fulfilled all of this. He is our high priest. Hebrews 9.1, and I know we're reading a lot here, but I encourage you to follow along. This is good stuff. It says, then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances and divine service and the earthly sanctuary for a tabernacle was prepared. The first part in which was a lampstand, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer, the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold in which were the golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it was the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Yeah, because he didn't want to overview all these chapters we're looking at. Verse 6, it says, Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. 
But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. So did you follow that? The first two thirds, they would go in continually. Then the high priest would go into the holy place once a year. Again, for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. And boy, you know, that's a whole lot of sins. You know, we're aware of the sins we commit. I guarantee you, we commit way more in ignorance, so we don't even have a clue that we're committing them. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience concerned with only food and drinks and various washings and fleshy ordinances imposed to the time of reformation. So in other words, those things were symbolic. Those things were done, but again, they couldn't fulfill which really what needed to be done. It was to teach them about Christ who would come that would be the fulfillment of these things. Verse 11, but Christ came as, a, as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place, notice here, circle this, once for all, obtaining the eternal redemption. For if the blood and bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled the unclean sanctifies the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So Jesus fulfilled it all. That was just the copy. Jesus is the substance. And this is key once for all. And listen, I want to point out here, and I alluded to it earlier, there are people that every time they take communion, they believe that they are sacrificing Jesus over and over again. That's what the Eucharist is. The Roman Catholics practice, and even Lutherans, and many uh, Episcopalians, and so forth. And they practice it at different degrees and so forth, but the Roman Catholic Church teaches that every time you take communion, it's the literal body of Jesus and the literal blood of Jesus, and they are sacrificing him over and over again. That's why if you go into a Catholic church, oh, it's not up here right now. There's a mountain up there. They still got Jesus on that cross because they think he's being sacrificed over and over and over and over again, and they basically, you know what, reduce him to a bull or to a goat. Really, if he has to be sacrificed over and over again, what's the difference? It's a whole other priesthood, works-based that's been set up. We've got to do all these things. We've got to do our Hail Marys. We've got to do our penance. We've got to do this stuff over and over and over and over and over and over again. They need to read the book of Hebrews. Once for all, Jesus shed his blood. Once for all, he paid the price. He's not a bull. He's not a goat. He's the son of God without sin who satisfied the justice of the Father in his death and his resurrection. Now, that's not to say a Roman Catholic can't be saved. They're going to be saved, though, through faith in that one and done in Jesus Christ. But if they're putting their faith in the Roman Catholic theology of the Eucharist and sacraments and so forth, I'm sorry, that is another gospel. And hear this, that is another Jesus. 
Because my Jesus once and for all died for my sins and rose from the grave. He is not being crucified over and over again. That is a different Jesus, period. That's trampling the blood of Christ over and over again, saying it wasn't sufficient. Now, praise God, there are many of the Roman Catholic Church that are ignorant to what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, and they do know that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. And listen, there are many of those folks that, through that teaching alone, come to faith in Jesus, and most of them, when they start reading their Bibles, begin to exit it that place and go to a place where the Bible is actually taught as the authoritative word of God, not the traditions of men being the, you know, the word or the authority of God Almighty. And so it's just important that we know this, one and done, because there's a lot of people today making real light of this stuff. There's a lot of Protestants or, or you know what, Bible supposedly teaching churches, evangelicals that are heading everything towards Rome to make it all one again. And there's all kinds of problems on top of that with their current, you know what, uh, vicar here on earth saying you can be an atheist. He even stretches it out bigger. You can be an atheist, go to heaven, and you can practice whatever you want and go to heaven. That's actually part of the Catholic false gospel because you're not saved just through the work of the, of the cross. You're saved through works. So when he says an atheist will go to heaven, he's not saying you're going to go right away. You're going to go spend a lot of time in purgatory and then when you've atoned for your own sins through your works, then you'll get in through the back door. That's what he's saying there. And that's why they can say, listen, they can all come under our banner and we can be a universal church because eventually you'll work your way there through penance there in hell. And listen, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, all the penance in the world is never going to save you. We need to have our sins atoned for through a perfect sacrifice. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ once for all. And listen, this is good news. This is liberating. Look at all this rigmarole here. Praise God we have been delivered from it. Praise God we are partakers of the new covenant. Praise God Jesus Christ tore that bell in the temple from the top to the bottom. Matthew 7.50. Jesus is on the cross here. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two, notice here, from the top to the bottom. It wasn't men from the bottom to the top, but God from the top to the bottom. And the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the grave after the resurrection, they went to the holy city and appeared to many. Their faith was fulfilled. As a result, I have to think, these were some saints fresh in the grave, they were resurrected. And not only was their faith fulfilled and that they were going to have eternal life through the Lord, the Lord says, I'm going to raise you up and I'm going to let you be a witness and extend your days a little bit longer. And then Hebrews 10, 19, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our, water, our bodies washed with pure water. This is good news. We can have boldness. Listen, the high priest, when he once a year, he went in there trembling. He knew that if he hadn't made the proper sacrifices for his sins upon going in there, he would be struck down dead. 
Tradition teaches when the high priest went in, they would tie a rope around his leg. And there were bells upon his garments so they could make sure he was still moving around in there. And the rope was tied around his leg so that if he was struck down dead, if he went in there without a heart of reverence, without a heart yielded to the Lord, no one was going to go in there to get that because they'd be struck down too. They would pull him out by the rope. That's the high priest. But because of our high priest, we can enter in boldly to the real tabernacle, to the real temple, to the real holy of holies, not this model made here on earth. It's like, do you want to live in the Lego house or in the real house? And that can't even be compared between the earthly tabernacle and the heavenly tabernacle. And we can go in again with boldness, with full assurance, not because of us, but because of him. Because all these good works that they were doing, the construction of this thing, and tearing it down, and building up, and all the sacrifices and stuff, it can never atone for their sins. Never got the job done. But Jesus got the job done. Jesus paid the price. Do you need your conscience washed tonight? From your sin, from your past? Sometimes people say, well, I know the Lord's forgiven me, but I haven't forgiven myself. It's still on my conscience. Well, listen, quit focusing on what you've done and focusing on what Jesus has done for you and your conscience will get washed. It's not that we disregard our conscience out of that. Paul talks about worshiping or walking with a pure conscience practically. That's a wonderful place to be. But tonight, if your faith is in Christ Jesus, if you've repented and trusted in him, you can know that you know that you know that you're washed and forgiven and that God wants to wash your conscience of those things that the enemy wants to drum up and to take them and to you know, hover over you. You know what? casting condemnation and so forth upon you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus fulfilled all of this. And he went through all this effort with them to teach them these things so that they would be prepared for when the Christ came, that he's a fulfillment. And he absolutely is. We'll get into uh, 27 next week, Lord willing. A lot of good things here. And so hopefully this is a thing that even... And in learning this and seeing these things, when you're in your devotions and you come to these chapters in Exodus, and again, you got to be careful because, you know, I think it's easy to read stuff into this, but at the same time, it is a pattern and there's things that can be seen here. And we know how Jesus, again, tore that, that, that veil, that curtain in two. It's all wonderful to be able to read and understand and understand the fulfillment of these things and so forth. And so hopefully, you know, for some of you, I know it was by way of reminder. Others, you know, hopefully maybe you learned something tonight that just helps further your walk in the Lord. And my, my big prayer in these things that it would be all the more we would enter into boldly. We'd understand the privilege we have. We'd understand we are the partakers of the better covenant, the good covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I praise God as a pastor that I don't have to go and offer lambs and bulls and rams upon an altar and turtle doves and all this kind of stuff. Thank you, Jesus, for delivering us from that. So tonight, God, we praise you. We give you glory. We thank you for your time, Lord, our time here in the Word of God. We thank you, Jesus, for doing it all for us. And Lord, tonight, I, I would just...
pray if there's any who have not just put their faith in you. If there's any here, God, that have put their faith in you and then them, what they could do, or they've been putting their faith not in you dying for us once for all, as the scripture says, but maybe they've been putting their faith in a Eucharist, that they would repent of that tonight. And they would turn to put their faith solely in the Lord Jesus Christ, because communion ain't going to wash any one of their sins. It's only Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. That's it. If tonight you think you're saved through trust in Jesus and you take in communion tonight, that's a false gospel. It is to what Jesus has done and that alone. And so if you're in that place, trust in him. And if you're in that place where you're like, my conscience is so evil that it's almost seared now, so callous that I've been so evil, Jesus wants to wash your heart and he wants to wash your conscience tonight through you calling on Jesus Christ's name with a humble heart and asking him to be the Lord of your life and putting your faith in him to be the God of your life, believing he died for you and rose from the grave, asking him to rule over you, to lead you. He will meet you where you are tonight. And so call on him. Do business with the Lord. Become a partaker of the new covenant and know that you know that you are in right standing before the living God because the time is coming soon where we're going to give an account for our lives. And if we are found in sin, we will be damned forever in hell. And that's the absolute truth of the matter. God didn't send his son just to make another way. He sent his son because he is the only way. God demands perfection. We don't even come close to perfection. We are such sinners. But Jesus is without spot, without blemish. He lived a perfect life, a sinless life, and he died in your place and my place that if we put trust in him, we can know that we can know that we are saved to the uttermost. What a good place to be. Bless the rest of our night, Lord, here, God. We thank you and praise you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, and we sit together. Amen.